Hello, and welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds who live and work right here in the Grand River region. Our slogan is Listen Local, Think Global. This is our third season of bringing you literary excitement from off the beaten path. I am your host, Tannis McDonald, and I'm a writer myself of seven books of nonfiction and poetry. I'm a professor of Canadian literature and a long-term creative writing instructor. The founder of Watershed Writers is Francis Roberts Riley, the poet and memoirist who serves as the show's producer, and the fabulous John Roscoe takes care of all our tech needs. We are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, where our liaison, Matt Rapolt, makes sure our stories make it to the air. Our guest on this episode of Watershed Writers is Jessica Vitalis, who may be a new face on the literary scene, but she has started off with a bang with her books for middle grade readers. And she brings her experience of growing up in a non-traditional and extremely well-traveled childhood to her books, exploring themes such as death and grief, domestic violence, and socioeconomic disparities. Jessica began, like so many of us, by writing stories in the third grade, And as an adult with a personal mission to write entertaining and thought-provoking literature, Jessica often includes magic and fantastical settings to examine social and cultural issues in her writing. And she says that it all came back to her at Columbia University when she was studying for a Master's of Business Administration and took a course called Creativity and Personal Mastery. In this course, she was assigned the task of identifying her ideal career, and voila, it was writing. See what an MBA can teach you? Jessica's first book, The Wolf's Curse, came out in 2021, and her second book, which she calls a standalone companion novel to The Wolf's Curse, is titled The Rabbit's Gift, and it came out in 2022. Both books are published by Greenwillow HarperCollins. Her next book, Coyote Queen, arrives in October 2023, and she is currently at work on a fourth book, slated to appear in the fall of 2024. Jessica has said that her passion is writing for middle grade readers and for, and I'm quoting Jessica here, for adults who know that all the best stories are written for children. And her website is a treasure trove of book recommendations that I highly recommend. Jessica's books have been translated into three languages, and she is a recipient of a Canada Council of the Arts grant for her next book. About The Rabbit's Gift, author Kate Albus wrote that the book contains, quote, gorgeous botanical imagery and timely messages about the importance of working together for the common good, unquote. Welcome, Jessica Vitalis, to Watershed Writers. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And um, 
great to get a little bit of a chance to know you. Now, you and I have met in real life once, um, but uh, sometimes I know writers who come on the show quite well, and I, I don't know you that well. So I'm going to ask you what your favorite way to introduce yourself is, and um, does it differ from other ways that other people would introduce you? What a great question. Let's see, left to my own devices, I would probably just tell people that I spend most of my time in my pajamas reading and writing books and changing the batteries in my heated socks. But that doesn't sound very professional. Most people tend to focus on my publishing career with the sort of introduction that you've already given. And does the envy rain down when, when you say that that's what you spend your life doing? And, <laughs> and where are these heated socks? I, I need to know. Okay, that's the best part of that introduction because everybody always wants to talk about the heated socks, but you can get them on Amazon and everybody should own a pair because they are truly life-saving. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a background in business, right? I do have a background in business. I got my MBA. Okay, excellent. And you are fairly new to the KW area, right? I have been here for about five and a half years now, but I'm originally from the United States. And where did you grow up? What kinds of regions did you grow up? I mean, we we define, you know, KW as being sort of, you know, an interlake region, you know, defined by the lake effect and, and the Great Lakes. Um, and of course, the farming communities around us. Um, and of course, I should also mention the tech sector. Um, but where did you grow up and, and can you tell us about those kinds of regions? Sure. I actually had a very transient childhood, so I moved a lot. In fact, I had moved almost 24 times before I even reached fourth grade. So I was born in Montana, but my family traipsed back and forth between Montana and the Midwest and California for most of my life until I reached adulthood when I continued to move quite a lot. But instead of the small towns that I had been living in as a child, I gravitated toward the city. So I lived in New York City and Minneapolis, St. Paul and Madison and Atlanta. And then five and a half years ago, my husband, who is a professor, was offered a job at UW. So we ended up in Canada. And I think, knock on wood, we're probably going to stay. Good to hear. Good to hear. You know, when you said Madison, I thought that means that you have a partner who's an academic. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it means it kind of feels like coming home because I would say Waterloo feels a lot like Madison, Wisconsin in a ah. way. So, yeah, it's part of the reason we're so happy to be here. Excellent. Great. Well, lovely to have you here. Before we get into your own books, uh, The Wolf's Curse and uh, The Rabbit's Gift, I wanted to talk to you about your writing influences. Now, I know uh, on, I think it's on your blog, uh, you uh, called Bridge to Terabithia uh, a favorite of yours. Can you talk about that as an influence or do you want to talk about a more unlikely one? So in terms of influences, although I love Bridge to Terabithia, it's one of the very few books that I can pick it up and crack it open and just start bawling almost immediately. That didn't necessarily influence my writing career as much as two other books. The first one is a book called Kit's Wilderness by an author named David Almond. The reason that book is so powerful for me, because when I first started writing 
20-ish years ago, I thought that I was going to be a picture book author. And so I wrote a bunch of picture book manuscripts and I joined a critique group and I kept bringing these manuscripts to my critique group and they kept saying, we love this. It sounds exactly like the chapter in a middle grade novel. But I hadn't read middle grade since I was in middle school. So I remember going to the library and just browsing the shelves. And I picked up a copy of this Kids Wilderness by David Allman, didn't know anything about it, took it home, read the book, and I was just absolutely captivated because I had no idea that middle grade books like that existed. It's an incredibly powerful book. It's dark. It's about a boy and his relationship with his grandfather who's dying and has dementia, but it also has this really dark magic to it. And it just immediately felt like home to me. So that book really changed the trajectory of my career. And then the second book that I think is really important, and this might be jumping ahead just a little bit, but the book that influenced my writing journey the most is The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. So that is a book that is set in Nazi Germany, and it's about a child who's sent to live with a foster family, essentially. But the real brilliance in the story is that it's narrated by death. And I was absolutely captivated by that. And so at a point where I had been writing for several years, really wanted to get published. I was looking for a new idea and I decided to take that idea of death as a narrator and see what would happen if I tried to do that in a middle grade book. Which leads us very nicely into your first book, The Wolf's Curse, in which the wolf, who's the narrator, known as the Great White Wolf, this this female persona, um, is also a, a kind of manifestation or really a, a kind of servant of death, right? Now, I know that The Wolf's Curse came out fairly recently, 2021, and that might have some people thinking that you are quite a new writer, but I have to really note how busy you've been. So, <laughs> you know, The Wolf's Curse coming out in 2021, The Rabbit's Gift, which you call a kind of loose sequel, was published in 2022, and now I hear that you have a third book coming out in 2023 called Coyote Queen. Okay, so I have to ask, that seems like some very speedy work, but maybe it wasn't. Have these things been uh, you know, in the planning and in the writing for a long time and just coming out concurrently? Actually, I also have a fourth book coming out in 2024, which is a novel in verse. So yes, there has been a lot going on over the last few years. And it quite honestly has been very grueling to write four books over the course of four years. But I am not complaining because, as I mentioned earlier, I wrote for 13 years before getting my first book deal. The book deal that I got was a two book deal, but I had only written The Wolf's Curse. And since I had now another book due a year later, I had to write very quickly a second book. And then as I was writing that book, I got another two book deal. The third book that's coming out, The Coyote Queen, is a book that I started, gosh, almost 20 years ago as a memoir. And the book did not work. I don't have the memory to write a memoir. Writing memoirs is extremely difficult because life does not follow a tidy narrative arc. So for all sorts of reasons, that book was never going to work. But I couldn't let go of some of the themes that I wanted to explore and some of the experiences that I had. So over the years, I tried to write that book again and again. 
And it really wasn't until I started writing fantasy with Wolf and Rabbit that I decided to just try to take a few pieces of my childhood and incorporate some magic. And as soon as I did that, book three came together very, very quickly. And then I just had to scramble to come up with an idea for book four. So yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride over the last few years. Wow. Well, you know, I always think that's fascinating because it does look like people have instant success, but it's instant success after 15 years, right? Yeah. And, and actually that turned out to be quite a blessing because it was, you know, more than a decade of very intensely studying craft. So I don't suffer from a lot of the angst that new writers have of, can I get this book done? And, oh, I'm on deadline. And, oh, I have the second book. Will it live up to the first? Of course, sitting down to a blank page is always terrifying, but I sort of have this innate sense that been there, done that. I know how to do this. I have a good set of tools in my toolbox if I get stuck. So it's all worked out okay, even though it was a long ride. And you mentioned before that you uh, had joined a critique group earlier in your um, in pursuing uh, your writing career, and it was instrumental in steering you towards the genre that, that became your own with these middle grade novels. Can you say a little bit more about the kind of support that you got from that group? Yeah, I've actually had a whole variety of critique partners, critique groups, and beta readers over the years. So it really takes a long time to find a set of people who understand not only the industry that you're writing in so they can give you craft feedback, but understand how to give feedback in a way that you as a writer can take in and process. So I am very lucky that over the last several years, I have landed with a group of just absolutely incredible writers who are able to give me feedback in a way that feel supportive, but also they aren't afraid to tell me when I'm off track. And so almost all the time I sit down and write a first draft of a book and I send it off to them and they say, this is what works, this is what doesn't. And I end up throwing out that draft and just completely starting over because of their very, very important feedback. So they really have been essential to my career. Yeah, I think it can't be emphasized enough what it means to have that kind of literary community. And it is hard to find, not because people are ungenerous, but everyone is, you know, working their paid job, working their unpaid job. And it takes a, a lot. And it's a very generous act to, to read someone's uh, early work like that. I want to get back to The Wolf's Curse. Now, when I read it, I was very surprised and very pleased to read that in this book for middle grade readers, you are exploring an entire belief system about what happens when a person dies. And further, what the proper or the dictated uh, mourning process was by the government system in the book. Now, I should tell you that I began my academic life as an elegy scholar, so uh, I have a very long-standing interest in mourning rituals and cultural standards of caring for the spirits of the dead. It's kind of my jam. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I'd really like it if you could talk about how you fashion that belief system that your protagonist Gage tries mightily to respect and of course comes up against all kinds of difficulties of honoring his grandfather in a particular way uh, because of his own poverty, because of beliefs about who Gage is, uh, because of beliefs about what is sacrilegious or not sacrilegious. And I think it's a lot for a middle grade novel, but I also really like it in a middle grade novel as a point of inquiry. Can you say more about that? When I started writing The Wolf's Curse, basically the idea came from, as I talked about before, this 
book thief. I really wanted to explore the concept of what it would look like to have a middle grade Grim Reaper, essentially. So I sat down and I very quickly wrote out a first draft of a story. And at that time, I had written a lot of dark stories prior to that. And I really wanted to go for something humorous and a little bit lighter. And so I whipped out this story that I thought was kind of funny with death trying to trick somebody into taking her job. And I sent it off to my trusted beta readers. And they got back to me and they said, you know, this story's fine. The writing is fine, but you've written an entire novel with essentially death as the narrator, and there's no death in your story. So what is this story about? What are the themes? What are you exploring? So I did my usual. I threw the story out and I started from scratch. And the first thing that I did is sit down and really look at what it means in our culture to be a sort of grim reaper and how we portray that. And I was quite troubled because the grim reaper in our culture is this usually masculine figure shrouded in black and carrying a scythe. And it's very, very frightening. When I write for middle grade children, I don't want them to be frightened. And I certainly don't want them to be frightened of death, because although that's an unknown, it is a natural part of life. So I wanted to try to play with that trope and flip it on its head. And in thinking about doing that, I thought first, well, how can I make this Grim Reaper less frightening? And I thought, let's make the Grim Reaper an animal. And so I landed on a wolf. My first thought was to make the Grim Reaper a crow, but... As an author, I always want to try to make things difficult for my characters. And if your job is to collect souls and you can fly off with them, that's pretty easy. So I knew that it had to be a four-legged animal and I settled very quickly on a wolf. And then I thought, let's take it a step farther. Let's make it a female wolf. So I ended up with this character who's an omniscient narrator. And the next thing I had to ask myself is how she feels about her job. Like, would you like to be a Grim Reaper? And I thought, well, that would probably be pretty awful. It would be pretty lonely. People wouldn't like you. And so that's really what gave me the premise of my book is that she needs to find somebody to take her job and she has to trick somebody she thinks into taking it. So once I had that laid out, I started to really look at what I wanted my world to look like. And I started to look at death rituals around the world. So I did not dive into them nearly as deeply as I'm sure you have. For me, it was more of just a surface you know, what's out there? How do people think about death and death rituals? And what that did for me was sort of open my eyes to the idea that how we as a Western culture think about death is oftentimes much different than how other cultures think about death. And that gave me the incentive to really sort of think out of the box. I didn't want to take any of those cultures because I didn't want to appropriate anybody else's culture, of course, but it let me think about who my people are. And I already knew that I was going to set the book in a sort of French inspired fishing village. And I thought, well, if this is a medieval world where people are in a fishing village and they don't know a lot like we do, they don't have the science and technology to sort of figure out what's out there. What would they think about the sky? When you're standing on the seashore, for instance, and you're looking out and you can't quite tell where the sea ends and the sky begins. So I turned that into the sea and the sky. So that's what they believe when you die. You get buried in a coffin that they call a vessel, which is a carved boat, and you sail up into the sea and the sky. And then from there, I developed these elaborate ceremonies where you have to be buried with feathers because, of course, they believe you have to be able to fly up to the sea and the sky to start your journey. I developed a ritual where they actually believe they're breaking the soul from the body so that you can take off on that journey. So it was really a long involved process, but I really tried to dig into the culture and the setting that I thought people might believe in based on where they were living and the time they lived.
I really like that. I love I love that metaphor of sailing into the sky. At the same time, I, I loved it. I could see that it was very hard for Gage to fulfill all of these morning rituals because, again, because of his own poverty and because uh, the, the twist is, of course, he's seen the wolf and people think he has supernatural powers that are scary. And about the wolf herself, I wanted to ask, I mean, I think this is part of a long tradition where the supernatural character has an existential crisis because of their attachment to the human world. Right. And what did you think about that? I mean, because then we have death, you know, wondering about what death really is. Right. How I approached the wolf was really just with this idea that she doesn't like her job. And so then I had to sort of develop this idea of afterlife and figure out how she feels about the afterlife. And as I said before, she doesn't like it very much. So I don't know that I went too terribly deeply into all of the existential crises that she might have had, other than just she's really desperate to take advantage of the situation where for the first time in a very long time, somebody can see her. And that means this is a person who could potentially take her job. Could you read us a little bit from The Wolf's Curse? I would love to. So the passage that I'm going to read, again, this is an omniscient narrator. The story is told by the wolf, but we are actually going to meet the main character, who is a boy by the name of Gage for the first time. The passage starts, the carpenter sinks down on a stool and swipes at the perspiration beaded on his forehead. Let's call it a day. Gage's gaze flickers to the window. It's too bright for closing time. He frowns, noting his grandpapa's thin frame and the old man's shaking hands. He thinks that his grandpapa must need to rest, that perhaps he's catching cold. The boy reaches back in his mind, but he can't remember the last time his grandpapa was ill. You stay there, the boy says. I'll finish up. He straightens the workshop, locks the front door, and flips the open sign so that it hangs upside down. The villagers believe that if a sign isn't properly flipped in the evening, it's an invitation for me to visit, as if I care one way or another about their signs. But these people are a superstitious lot, and there is no convincing them otherwise. Gage offers the old man a hand standing up and is relieved when it's waved off. He tells himself that he overreacted, that his grandpapa is fine after all. I follow them into the living room behind the workshop, slipping through the door before they pull it shut. No, I don't need to use doors, but I prefer it. I don't know why. Please stop pestering me with your incessant questions. The room is sparse but clean. Two benches border a sturdy table and a large pot dangles above the hearth. A single straw stuffed mattress rests on a bed sized for the two of them to share. Pacing back and forth, I wish time moved more quickly. Hundreds of winters spent searching for a replacement should have taught me some patience, but now that I'm this close, each moment stretches out into eternity, leaving plenty of room for doubt to wiggle its way in. What if the boy rejects me? It could happen, has happened before. In all my winters, there have only been two other voyants. The first was a child who didn't survive her third winter. As for the second, well, the only thing you need to know is that she refused my proposal and then had the nerve to set sail before I had time to persuade her otherwise. There's no telling if or when I'll ever get another chance like this. Thanks very much. Um, I love um, the fact that in both The Wolf's Curse and The Rabbit's Gift, you have narrators who address the readers directly. Not all the time, but in these kinds of asides. And in both books, you have uh, 
<laughs> you have these tiny footnotes, <laughs> right? And I, I love these footnotes in a middle grade uh, novel, a way, of course, of having that kind of aside, that kind of nudge to the reader that the narrators know that they're telling a story and sort of honoring that kind of storytelling tradition of, uh, I think, very productive self-consciousness, right, in, uh, in the narrators themselves. Now, I want to start thinking about The Rabbit's Gift, and I know that you have written elsewhere that having written about death for your first book, you wanted this, as you've called it, a, like a loose sequel to be about life, to be about birth and beliefs around birth, and in some of the same ways as we've got a, a kind of belief around death in The Wolf's Curse. So for The Rabbit's Gift, your source material was a French folktale about rabbits as deliverers of infants. Can you talk more about uh, adapting this mythological material to, again, the, those kind of the first person animal narrated book of uh, The Rabbit's Gift? As you said, I definitely wanted to write a companion novel. I felt like death was done. I had already done that. Wanted to write about birth, but of course, birth is absolutely not appropriate for or interesting to the middle grade market. So I was on the phone complaining to one of the critique partners. It always comes back to the critique partners, right? I was complaining to them about how I had a year to write this book and I didn't have an idea and what was I going to do? And my girlfriend asked me if I had heard about this French myth where Instead of our traditional stork mythology in Europe, they believe that babies are grown in cabbage plants. And I started doing some Googling and I came across a film called La Fiachu, which is a one minute silent film that was made in 1896 by a filmmaker called Alice Guy Blachet. And it is absolutely fabulous. She actually dresses up as a fairy and she sort of dances around on the screen and very unceremoniously plucks these babies out of these cabbage plants and drops them on the ground. And it's hilarious and horrifying, but it was also quite important at that time because it was one of the first films, if not the first film, to tell a story. So largely considered the first narrative film in the entire world. And Alice was the first female filmmaker. So I was completely in love with this, knew immediately that I had my idea, but I wasn't really certain about the fairy thing because that didn't feel like it was a good companion for the wolf. So I decided to flip that and I chose a rabbit as my sort of animal figure. And then I wanted to stay away from cabbage plants because that felt just a little too reminiscent of Cabbage Patch Kids and I didn't want to run into trademark issues. So I developed a fictional plant called a shoe, which is the French word for cabbage, of course. I ended up with a story that is very much based on French lore, and it's set in a country where human babies are grown in cabbage-like plants and delivered by rabbits. The way I would say it really departs from Wolf is that rather than an omniscient narrator, I decided to go with a dual point of view. So I do have my rabbit, who is a scrawny little rabbit by the name of Quincy, and he is desperate to prove himself to his starving Warren. And he sneaks away because he's determined to steal the purple carrot seeds that the starving rabbits need to survive. But I didn't feel like I could necessarily drive an entire story with the rabbit. And so I also included the point of view of a human girl whose name is Florine. 
and she longs for a sibling to help shoulder the burden of her mammo's impossible expectations because her mammo is the Grand Lumiere who rules the entire country. So when Florine discovers Quincy stealing her precious purple carrot seeds, she follows him back to the top secret warren and that really sets off a catastrophic string of events for humans and rabbits. While we're talking about YA books on watershed writers, it's time to tell you that we're also looking for book reviewers of all ages to talk about their experiences of reading books by local writers. And we really mean all ages. So, if you're a middle grade reader, between 9 and 14 years old, and you love to read, why not think about doing a book review for us? we'd like you to read the new book by local author Aaron Bow. The book is called Simon Sort of Says. We'd like you to read it and tell us about it. Aaron also wrote Stand on the Sky, which won a Governor General's Award for Literature a few years ago. And she is someone who loves to hear from her readers. So, are you interested? If you are, contact us with a short biography. Tell us who you are and what you love to read, and tell us why you'd like to record a book review for Watershed Writers. Email all of that to us at watershedwriters at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You know, there were certain points of the the rabbit's gift that were... um, Yeah, a little bit horrifying, as you said, in terms of um, La Fée de Choux, right? At one point, Florine has the shoe in which she imagines her her sister, like a, a, a baby that is uh, hidden in the shoe, and she can see the baby breathing within the leaves of the shoe and uh, the cabbage. And I, I want to make sure that people don't think we're talking about things that go on your feet, not that kind of shoe, <laughs> right. right? And leaves of the, of the large cabbage-like um, vegetables. I had, uh, and I don't think children are going to have this, but I was definitely having a um, invasion of the body snatchers moment. Um, thinking of that, right, <laughs> right, the, with the with the, how the, the people are grown from these these large pods, right? And I thought, wow, this taps into a whole other thing about how we both love and fear vegetation and the and the uh, you know sort of the, the the domestic and the alien life of of vegetation. Anyway, that's me, but I thought I'd tell you that. I have not heard anybody say that before, and I definitely didn't have that in my head as I was writing it, but I can see it, and I kind of love it, actually. <laughs> well, but I, but I think it's appropriate, right? I, I don't think it's, like, out of the realm of, of what you're talking about. I think it's supposed to be mysterious, and since the book is interested in both religious belief as backed by government and also the incursions of science into that, I think it is appropriate to have these kind of uncanny moments that are going to be unpacked by research later on in that society. Okay, so I have to ask, the rabbit's gift, we've got our rabbit narrator, and uh, I'm going to mention the specter of Watership Down, because of course, while there can be any number of stories about rabbits, we have one very influential one that was not really written as a, as a middle grade book, but of course has been read to children, etc., and has become this kind of classic, and there's a few narrative touch points, the belief in the rabbit deity, the questing rabbit's journey away from uh, the warren, etc. Yeah, I'd like to hear you talk a bit about what it was like 
to write under the kind of umbrella or maybe the dark cloud of this literary legacy uh, Richard Adams has left with Watership Down? First of all, those are really, really big shoes to fill. It's probably a good thing that I actually did not think about that as I was writing. Oh, really? Unbelievable as that seems. I was really very, very focused on creating this companion novel for Wolf. And it did not even occur to me. I hadn't read Watership Down since I was a child. So it was not something that was on the front and center of my mind. And it really wasn't until we started sending the book out to advanced readers and people started making those comparisons that I went back and reread Watership Down and started to see the different similarities. And the big one that jumped out for me was the issue of the deity that you had mentioned in Watership Down. That's, of course, Lord Firth. In my book, that is the grand memo in the moon. She really came into being simply because I really needed a reason why my human character, Florine, couldn't study botany, because that's really what she wants to do and her mom wants her to follow in her political footsteps. And so I ended up leaning into the year 2020 when this was developed and the pandemic and all of the different things that were going on in terms of vaccinations not being available yet. And so I really started to explore this space where our personal beliefs rub up against science. And I decided that this would be a culture where science is not embraced. In fact, it's outlawed because they're afraid that it might offend the grand memo in the moon. There are definitely some similarities and parallels, but that wasn't done with any level of intention as I was writing. I'm glad you've mentioned these kinds of parallels to our present world. The Rabbit's Gift takes place in uh, sort of an an alternate uh, Renaissance period in this alternate France. But I also thought like in terms of birth, I think it's hard to write anything about birth and birth systems and who gets to have a child and who does not and what you have to do in order to get a child without coming up against sometimes very bleak looks at governmental systems that confer fertility on the privileged. And so I was thinking of both sort of a systems of adoption, who gets to adopt children, and also because the line between sort of ad- adoption and, and birth is, is blurred in this book, sometimes rules uh, about the availability and who gets to have birth control. So yeah, can you say more about that kind of criticism, not only about the place of science, but also about the rules about who gets to have children, who, who gets to bear children? In the very first draft of this book, I definitely was exploring that a little bit more, but it just felt too heavy and it didn't feel like a story that I had the expertise to write. So when I rewrote it, I tried to lean away from that. Also in part because those topics aren't really appropriate for middle grade readers and they're not particularly interested in them. So I think if you look, you can definitely see those topics. But what I was really trying to explore with this story is a more general issue of power and privilege. So the story takes place in a country called Mont Peru, which again is ruled by the Grand Lumiere, who is Florine's mother. And the Grand Lumiere really tries to be a good leader, but she lives a very pampered, sheltered life. And she doesn't see that her people are starving. And she doesn't know that that is happening because of a recent drought, which is causing people to flock to the cities. And of course that causes overpopulation and there is a shortage of food and prices are going up. And so there are all these problems that her people are suffering that she is not aware of. And Florine, for a variety of reasons, is starting to see that. 
she really wants her mammo to do something about that. But rather than innovate, they are clinging to the old ways and clinging to their beliefs about honoring the grand mammo in the moon and the way things have always been done. The book is also really an exploration of the relationship, I think, between man and science and how connected we are to nature. And so those are the things I was really trying to explore. There's a devastating moment where Florine discovers that the, the rabbits are starving. She sees their thin bodies in, in front of her as she's speaking, and she understands that they have been starved by this drought and that the system, the whole system has, is way out of balance. And I, to me, I thought that was one of the most important moments where we see her moving from a, you know, someone who is motivated by her own moderately selfish interests to someone who understands that there's a much, much bigger problem going on here than the fact that she wants a, a baby sister. So I think I wanna ask you to read from The Rabbit's Gift at this point. Sure. I would love to read a passage. So we've talked about how Florine is obsessed with studying botany. She is really hoping to unlock the secrets of these elusive purple carrots, which is what humans trade to the rabbits for human babies. And she is in her secret garden because, again, she's not allowed to study botany and she's about to check on the progress of her crop. So this is Florine. I brushed the last bit of soil aside, revealing the top of a carrot, a white, misshapen carrot. My hands dropped to my lap. My eyes stung as I blinked back tears. I'd bought purple carrot seeds, paid triple the already steep price. The vendor had insisted that there were no guarantees. Not even purple carrot seeds could guarantee purple carrots. In case you're confused, legend has it that the shiny purple seeds used to produce nothing but purple carrots, but over time that changed. No one knows why, but mark my words, one day I'll figure it out. I'd been so sure I'd get purple carrots in this crop. My heart had been so sure. This is only one carrot, I reminded myself. Mud coated my fingers as I scooped away the soil from the carrot next to it, white. Along with the carrot next to it and the carrot after that, I dug frantically sure that somewhere in the crop I'd find a handful of purple carrots. Rabbits required five for delivery, which seemed like a waste. Unless they had vastly different taste buds, the carrots were all but inedible. One of Mamo's wealthy supporters once served purple carrots at a dinner party. Even covered in heavy gravy, they were sickeningly sweet. Nothing like the delicious orange carrots Jean-André grew. Fat earthworms wiggled and squirmed, angry that I'd disturbed them. With each white carrot, a little hope drained from my chest. There were only a dozen carrots left when I scooped aside a handful of dirt and spotted a bit of purple. I frantically brushed more dirt aside, then sat back and let out a puff of frustrated air. This was tinged with purple on top, but white otherwise. I'd let my last batch grow to maturity, hoping the white was a stage in their life cycle, but now I knew these white carrots would never turn purple. Florine, my maid's voice tore through the garden. The fiery sun glowered at me from high in the sky. Oh no. I jumped to my feet and rubbed my hands together, groaning at the dirt caked under my nails. If Mammal caught sight of me, I'd be deep in a rotten pile of cabbage. Thank you. Ah, deep in a rotten pile of cabbage. I also like how um, the characters um, swear and they swear about cabbage and they swear about carrots, rotten carrots, right? Yes, that was a lot of fun. Right? <laughs> now, we've been talking about 
very big subjects here. And, you know, of course, uh, science, belief, um, starvation of the rabbits, etc. And I know that there has been lots of controversy about what can or can't be addressed in a, a children's book or a middle grade book or a YA book, right? And it's kind of shifts over those age, um, those age differentiations. And I know there's been a lot of controversy lately about the banning of uh, children's books uh, in the United States, but we cannot claim that Canada doesn't have a history of doing that as well. So did you think about censorship at any point in this book, whether you were addressing something that was not going to be welcomed by some readers? There is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> such a big issue. And like you said, it's such an important one, particularly right now in the United States. But as I was writing, I was certainly aware that I was tackling subjects that could potentially be controversial. I didn't worry too much about it because I think that these subjects are important to talk about. I think they're important for middle grade readers to read about. And I'm very lucky that I have gatekeepers. I have my agent, I have my editor, and I have my trusted critique group that keep me from making mistakes or hopefully putting out any material that might potentially harm a child in any way. When you really step back and look at censorship, it's not really about books that harm children because in virtually every case I've ever seen, banning books is really nothing more than very, very thinly veiled bigotry. If you actually read the books that are being banned, they are almost always fall under three categories. They're either books with LGBTQIA content, they are content or authors from underrepresented cultures and communities, or they are fantasy books that are somehow being accused of promoting witchcraft. But you really only have to pick up these books and read them to see if you pick up a book by Kelly Yang or Kyle Lukoff or any of the other authors that are being banned and read them, you'll see that they're absolutely wonderful, wonderful books. So this is part of a much bigger problem where parents are trying to decide what kids read and they absolutely have the right to do that for their own kid. But I don't think anybody has the right to decide what other people should be reading. It's actually very, very sad because as a mother and as a writer, I think it's really important for kids to be exposed to ideas and cultures that are different than their own because it makes us better friends, it makes us better neighbors, it makes us better humans. And more importantly, it opens important dialogues so that as a parent, I can develop a closer relationship with my kids and with young readers. Yeah, I have a lot of feelings about this and, and I'm really troubled by the path that I see us going down. Well, I think as well, you should have such feelings and you know, I do too. And I remember just quoting a, something that happened a, a little earlier uh, this year, one of David Robertson's um, middle grade books was banned and by some school because there were too many depictions of spirituality, right? right? It was indigenous spirituality, but I also said too many for whom, right? I thought this if this was a Christian book, there's be no way that it would be banned for having too many uh, depictions of spirituality. So, you know, the racism and the, and the prejudice there, I think, uh, um, really came to the fore. And as I remember it, I believe that that ban was was lifted because many people protested. And it's hard work, right? It's hard work saying over and over again that these are more insidious forces at work and they use children uh, as the soapbox to justify racism and prejudice. 
That's right. And it's really, I think it goes back to the the idea that the, it's the squeaky wheel that gets greased, right? There's one or two really, really loud people. And so all of a sudden these sweeping changes are being implemented that really harm a lot of people. Indeed. Now, I want to switch to talking about um, another kind of tradition in literature, uh, children's literature especially, but of course it happens in adult literature too. I know that many writers want to resist anthropomorphizing animals in their book. And I wonder about that because I think there's a great appeal for that, quite frankly. I'm always kind of into hearing the animals' perspectives. And I think this, you know, sort of moves into ecocriticism as well, or it can, right? I can't really imagine children's literature without that first-person horse narrator in Anna Siebel's uh, Black Beauty. Absolutely a kind of um, way to discuss how we work with animals and how sometimes we abuse them. So an important question. I'm interested in the fact that your next book is titled Coyote Queen. And you mentioned earlier on in this interview that it developed in some ways differently from the first two books that it developed out of your memoir that you thought wasn't going to actually become a memoir and you're using pieces of your own childhood here. Do we have an animal narrator there? And uh, if not, uh, who is the Coyote Queen? And tell us about um, her connection to your childhood. First of all, I have to say that I loved Black Beauty as a child, so that brings up some really great memories. But the interesting thing is that I really stayed away from anthropomorphic books as an adult, and I've been thinking about why that is. I think it's because I had a sense that maybe I wouldn't be able to connect with them anymore as an adult. And it really wasn't until I started working on The Wolf's Curse and realized that I needed to have this animal narrator that I realized it's not whether it's narrated by a human or an animal that's important. It's whether or not you connect to their emotional journey. And for me, it's also about whether the book explores themes that I care about. So I just think it's really interesting that for somebody who never liked to read as an adult animal books, I am not writing. That's how the cookie crumbles, I guess. It seems. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to the third season of Watershed Riders on Midtown Radio KW. You can find this and other episodes from previous seasons on SoundCloud and on Spotify. And to learn a little more about the authors featured on the show, please visit our website at watershedwriters, all one word, dot ca. In terms of Coyote Queen, Coyote Queen is a very major departure from my first two books. The Wolf's Curse and The Rabbit's Gift are absolutely fantasy rooted in historical worlds. Coyote Queen is very much a contemporary story that just has a little twist of magic. It is a story of a 12-year-old girl who decides to enter a beauty pageant to win the prize money that she needs to get herself and her mother away from her mother's abusive boyfriend. But the more she fantasizes about this escape, the more this connection to an eerie pack of coyotes lurking outside of her window grows. Pretty soon, really strange things start to happen. She goes colorblind and her eyebrows get more bushy and it seems like she can smell everything. So this story is definitely rooted in reality. As I said, I picked some pretty important moments from my childhood, but there is also it's definitely a fictional story and it has just a little twist of magic to it. Will you read us a little piece from it? I would love to. The piece I'm going to read does open with 
with my main character, Fudd, waking up, which I know is a little bit of a trope in middle grade, but it's important to the story. So we're just going to go ahead and, and run with it. This piece starts, I blinked awake, my heart pounding as though I'd been one of the coyotes in the fight. Instead of feeling sorry for the mountain lion, I felt admiration for the coyotes. Most people thought they were cowardly, but some indigenous cultures viewed them as tricksters. Either way, they were smart enough to stay away from humans. More important, they protected their own. Any one of those coyotes would have given its life to protect the pups. My thoughts were interrupted by puking sounds coming from the bathroom. Larry would have already left for work. I jumped out of bed. Are you okay? I yelled through the bathroom door. I will be, mom croaked. When I was sick, she always made me oatmeal and tea, so I went to the kitchen and started some water boiling. I was spooning the thick, gloppy oatmeal into bowls when she padded into the kitchen and sank down. Good morning. I set a bowl of oatmeal in front of her. The bruise around her eye had long since faded, but her hair was stringy and there were dark circles under her eyes. The shark started swimming around in my stomach again. Maybe you should see a doctor. Larry says doctors are quacks. Mom had taken me to doctors to get my vaccinations plenty of times when I was younger, and they'd all seemed fine. This was probably an excuse so Larry didn't have to pay for an appointment. Anyway, I don't need a doctor yet, Mom said, stirring her oatmeal. This comes with the territory. She was sick. My inside simmered like the boiling oatmeal. I wanted to know how bad it was, but I couldn't bring myself to ask. It's been a while since we've caught up, Mom said, making an effort to sound perky. What's new? Tell me everything. Took a deep breath. Lee and I both got into the Miss Tween black gold pageant, I said, watching her closely. Oh, yeah? She reached for her tea. My shoulders sagged. I'd hoped for a little more enthusiasm. I decided to try again. Hundreds of girls probably applied, but only 30 of us were selected. When is it? October 16th at the convention center. She blew on the tea. You know, I'm not going to be able to give you a ride. I stirred my oatmeal. The old mom would have been proud of me, but that was back when she'd been the leader of our pack, before she'd given up the spot to Larry, before she got sick. My stomach churned with anger, frustration, fear. I remembered my dream, how fierce the coyotes had been protecting their own, how they wouldn't have given up no matter what. I had to do the same. No more shy, hesitant FUD. Getting into the pageant wasn't enough. I had to win. Thank you for that. Yeah, speaking of difficult subjects, eh? Partner abuse and what a, you know, what a phrase when I hear that this is, you know, comes with the territory and the, the several layers of meaning to that. And that comes out in fall 2023. That's correct. Excellent. I note one of the things that you say in, in fact, I think it takes up the entire back cover of The Rabbit's Gift. The problem with stories is that you can never be absolutely certain that they're true. We've been talking about magical twists and creating different alternative histories, etc. But I think this idea of what is true and the attention to be paid to what is true in, in fantasy or in books that emphasize magic, what would you say is most important to you to be true in your books to date? That's a really great question, especially because the books are all so different. 
The first two books are fantasy. Again, this third book is contemporary. And then my fourth book that comes out in 2024 is actually a novel in verse. So different yet again. But I think the common thread in my work and sort of my mission as a writer or what I see as my mission as a writer is first and foremost to always write entertaining stories because I certainly want my reader to enjoy the journey. But it's also really important to me that I ask my readers to ask really big questions or maybe give them an opening to start thinking about the world in a different way. Jessica, I wanted to ask about this idea of having more than one audience for um, for middle grade readers. Clearly, it's um, the young people themselves, the middle grade readers. Um, but of course, it's also their parents, right? Um, and I, I think that's certainly important to what you've been saying about censorship. But I think there are other roles that that dual audience plays as well. So can you say a little bit more about your writing and you know that at least two groups of people are going to are going to read this and I also might say there's a there's a triple audience because books are, are reviewed as well right so there's a, a, a literary critical audience that reads it also. I don't worry too much about the other audiences when I'm writing. My main concern is always to write a book that would be appropriate for the middle grade market. But I do think there has been really a huge metamorphosis in the book industry in the last several years where adults are reading a lot more children's literature. And I think there's really a couple of reasons for that. One is that middle grade literature has changed so much. There is so much beautiful writing being put out. And we really do have the space as middle grade writers and YA authors to explore really deep themes that five, 10 years ago even were taboo or considered not appropriate for the middle grade market. But I think the real reason that adults are reading more younger literature is because the stories are packaged in a way that makes them really fun and really easy to read because we want to appeal to a middle grade audience and they're really fast. So as an adult, you don't have to plow through 400 pages with lots of purpley prose and heavy description in order to enjoy a really meaningful story. And how does that set against this idea that YA reading is becoming very popular um, with adult readers? How does that set against this idea, this kind of moral panic that seems to be causing censorship as well? Yeah, I do think that they're all tied together in a very complicated way, right? YA is definitely tackling a lot of really heavy, big subjects, and so more adults are reading them. And I think there are probably some really important questions there about how we label and market YA and the adult content that's often going into them, although I'm still not convinced at all that censorship is the right way to handle that. No, no, indeed. And I think of you know, some of the animal narratives that I read when I was young, I remember reading uh, Jack London's White Fang at far too young an age to be thinking you know about you know about trapping in the north and and you know the the dogs the dogs fighting and like all kinds of things yeah and and so this idea of especially when when we're thinking about the appeal of the the animal narrator the appeal of the animal protagonist i think children have been reading all over the place for a long time eager for that connection to to animal content and i think too more and more we're seeing echo criticism very much like your emphasis on botany as a uh, a valuable pursuit in the rabbit's gift. I think echo criticism certainly as early as Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books, and we could cite others as well. 
Oh, yeah. And I wanted to recommend uh, another contemporary adult read that has a dog as a narrator. Uh, you might not have heard of this writer because he was Canadian. His name is Leon Rook. Last name is spelled R-O-O-K-E. He used to live in Eden Mills, Ontario, not too far away from here. But he was an experimental writer. About 30 years ago now, he wrote a book called Shakespeare's Dog. <laughs> so the dog narrates, and he narrates in a dog version of Elizabethan English. I love that. So I recommend. <laughs> Thank you. You're most welcome. Indeed. And, and a novel in verse. Talk to me about the challenges of that. That has been fascinating. So I always really like to try new things. I've been doing this for so long that I like the challenge of just stretching my writing muscles. And novels and verse have become quite a thing in the middle grade market in recent years, I think because it's not poetry in the traditional sense. It doesn't rhyme. It's free verse, but there's a lot of blank space on the page. So they're very, very appealing to reluctant readers and they tend to be a lot faster reads, but I do not consider myself a poet. So watching this progress, I always swore that I would never try writing a novel in verse, but I was writing a short story for an anthology that we were pitching about first kisses and somehow my story just came to me in free verse. And that anthology ended up not selling, but my editor at HarperCollins read the story. And she said, you know, if you want to turn this into a novel, I would love to buy it. Well, of course, then I had to write a novel in verse. So here I am. And for you, how does the process differ? I mean, you said that, you know, the the first words came to you in verse, but then you have to continue. Yeah, it, it actually hasn't been too different than my other books in the sense that I approach my writing the same way. I always want to know who my characters are. I want to know what their want is at the start of the book, and I want to know what it is or how they change by the end of the book. So all of that has held true. The big difference has just been that I've had to really immerse myself in novels and verse so that I really understand the form and how to manage the very technical craft perspectives in terms of line breaks and just the form of writing free verse. But the process so far hasn't been terribly different and it's been a lot of fun. A couple um, middle grade novels and verse that I love. Uh, one is called Ebb and Flow by the Kitchener writer uh, Heather T. Smith, who has been a, a guest on our podcast. And I believe it won a very big award. And the other one, of course, I think is the, the super huge uh, bestseller, Love That Dog. Do you know Love I, That Dog? I have not read either of those. So oh. I'm down to add to my reading list. I'm actually going to be on a retreat next week. So that will give me some excellent reading time. And um, I can't wait. Uh, so Heather's, of course, is Canadian. I think Love That Dog has an American author. And uh, the premise of Love That Dog is that he loves that dog, but he hates writing poetry. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so the young author finds the only thing worth uh, writing poetry about is how great the dog is. I love that. So I recommend. <laughs> Thank you. You're most welcome. And it's going to be a great connection to my novel in verse because I also have a dog in my novel in verse. So uh, excellent. <laughs> well, our time is growing uh, is growing short. And so I think right now it's just time to thank you, Jessica, for being on the show. It was a delight to to hear you talk about your uh, your many, many uh, projects and to see them come to fruition. Thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much.
The Wolf's Curse and The Rabbit's Gift are both published by Green Willow Books, an imprint of HarperCollins, and they are available wherever fine books are sold. As always on Watershed Riders, we remind you to check out your local independent bookseller and to support them and the important they w- work they do in our communities. In the Grand River region, they are Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, Rookery Books in Cambridge, and The Bookshelf in Guelph. Thanks for joining us for this interview with Jessica Vitalis. Watershed Riders comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode, or if you just want to listen all over again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedriders.ca. With only a few more interviews left in our third season, our next episode will feature Cree author and educator Clarence Kachaji and his co-writer, Seth Ratzlitt. Clarence and Seth will share with us their process of working together on a memoir about Clarence's life, a book titled North Wind Man, newly out, with Galassenheit Publications. So don't miss that conversation. We are produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. In the studio, we are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is the show's founder and producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am your host and the voice in your ear, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global.